Okay, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. Today is Friday, December 23rd, and it is the sixth day of Hanukkah. Am I right? One, two, seven, nine. It's the sixth day of Hanukkah. <clears throat> so that ding is to remind you that if you have a cell phone, to silence it. <clears throat> and we're going to start with a word of prayer, and we are going to jump in. Lord, you are awesome. You are powerful. You are our creator and our savior. You are the one with all the money. You are the one with all the wisdom. You are kind and patient. You are long-suffering. God, you are so good in so many ways. And Lord, we are but sinners at best. Uh, our heart is desperately wicked. Uh, God, there is no good thing in us. And Lord, I pray that you'd please forgive us of our shortcomings and failures and sins and help us to be more like you and less like us in this next week. God, thank you for this church we can gather in, especially on this evening where we we have a potluck and we're going to learn about <clears throat> the holiday of Hanukkah. Thank you, God, that we can have our Bibles out. And, uh, you know, we live in America where we are still free to worship you and to get together and to pray and to sing songs. And we're just grateful for that. Lord, we ask that you'd please be with Several folks who are not here with us, they're traveling, they're out of town, they're visiting family. Uh, God, there are several of us that had a great week and we have things to celebrate, and there are others that had a really tough week, and and Lord, they are going through struggles, and I'd ask that you'd be with all of us, and just in some special way, Lord, remind everybody here that you love them, you are with them. Uh, remind all the folks that we can't see tonight that we wish we could spend the holiday with that you love them and and God as we go over the Hanukkah story which is entertaining and interesting and exciting God I also pray that you'd please speak to our hearts and uh, whatever we need to hear Lord please please break through and and tell us loud and clear, Lord, help us to, to do your will and to follow you and to, to be more like you. Uh, we love you, Lord, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have a couple of Hanukkahs, and we are going to uh, light them. And I'm going to have a couple people come on up and light the ones that we have up here. Louis, you need, do you have another lighter? Okay, so you guys are all set. So we are increasing the number of Hanukkahs we have every year. Washington, it's your night. Come on up. No, 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 no. There's a certain way you do it. Yep. So we're going to, we're going to, what's that? Did you do it last? Okay, Moses, it's your turn. Come on up. Okay, so go ahead and just set that candle down. You're, you're not going to need it. Oh, yep, perfect. Okay. So what we do is you light the center candle, okay? Now, how many days are there on Hanukkah? There are eight days. How many candles are there on a Hanukkah? There are nine. And everyone's first question the first time they do Hanukkah is, why is there an extra candle there? So what we do is we use the candle in the center, and we use that to light the other candle. So when we're counting the days of Hanukkah, this one in the middle, we do not count. So there are always going, there's going to be one extra candle burning. So we're going to light the center candle. You use that candle to go from one side to the other. One, two, three, four, five, sixth. It's, it is the sixth day, and then uh, you're all set. Amber, why don't you do the pretty one? Moses, come on over here, and you do this one that looks like it's going to fall over. Here. No, no, no. Take this out. Nope. 
We light it. Yep. Okay. So there you go. Okay. Moses, go ahead and light them. You got it. Start at number one right there. Yep. And just keep going till you have a total of seven candles lit, including the one in your hand. Awesome. Yeah, the ones that you buy at the supermarket that are in the little box, they look like crayons. They're called Hanukkah candles. Yeah, they, they are the one candle cheaper than birthday candles that you'll find. So they take a second. You got you to gotta get the candle to drip one drop of wax down, and as soon as it does, then it stays lit. There you go. Yep. And hold it a little bit lower on the side. There you go. Yeah, right there. As soon as it drips wax, boom. All right, everybody give them a big round of applause. Yep, there you go. You're good. You can take that back with you. Thank you. Good job, everybody. All right, now those will be burned out in two minutes. So next year, you can go ahead and uh, uh, see if you can get a Hanukkah and bring it. We'll see if we can increase the number we have every year. They make great gifts. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to tell the story of Hanukkah. And uh, before we do that, what I tell my kids every time we, we light a candle, we talk about uh, one idea. And that idea is that God is a God of miracles. And although God did a very small miracle, but meaningful and significant, and that is he made the oil to light the lamp in the temple that was only supposed to last one day. It lasted eight. Leading up to that day, God did some huge, miraculous, unbelievable, unbelievable miracles. And what I want my kids to remember and what, what I want them to learn from Hanukkah is that God is a God of miracles, and he is a God of big miracles. So you need to put out big prayers for God to answer because he is a God of big miracles. So if we're going to start with the Hanukkah story, we have to go all the way back in time to Alexander the Great. <coughs> I think that's kind of where the story starts. So most of us have heard of Alexander the Great, and that's good because almost every other person that I'm going to tell you about in this story, you might never have heard of if you haven't heard about the Hanukkah story before. So this is the one big name. Alexander the Great died without an heir to his kingdom in the summer of 323 BC. Does anyone know where Alexander the Great died? No, Alexandria is in Egypt. That's a good guess. And he had something to do with that town. But no, this question is worth five gold stars. Five. Not Rome, not Athens. Nope, not in Turkey, not Jerusalem, not Persia. It was Babylon. Alexander the Great died in Babylon. He made Babylon the capital of his world empire. And that's where he died. 
His last words, <clears throat> and this is from the historian Diodorus, his last words were to leave the empire to the strongest. Alexander's four generals divided up the armies and started a war that lasted about 40 years. His four generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. Cassander, who was a longtime comrade of Alexander the Great, ordered the execution of Alexander's wife and son. Then he executed Alexander's mother, Olympias, to consolidate his power as the new king of Macedonia, which is present-day Greece. When we read through the book of Acts and they talk about Macedonia, we're talking about uh, Greece. I believe specifically the northern part, but I might be incorrect there, so you, you can look it up yourself. Uh, Ptolemy founded a dynasty in Egypt that lasted till 30 B.C. Antigonus founded the Antigonid dynasty, which included present-day Turkey, Lebanon, and all of Israel. And then Seleucus, he founded the Seleucid Empire, comprising Mesopotamia, Antolia, and parts of India, and he would be the last remaining of the generals who were fighting the war. And after the 40 years of war between all of them and their heirs, he was the uh, the last one to survive. He came to be known as Seleucus, the first uh, Nicator, meaning the unconquered or the victor. Now, I sent you a picture. I emailed you a picture of what the world looked like after Alexander the Great died when they broke up his empire into the four different parts, those four generals, and they fought amongst themselves. And we could go into that history, and it might be interesting to you, but what we want to do is we want to look at what came of that. And that was the Seleucid Empire, which was comprised of the northern part of Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, I would say, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, and even moving in over into uh, India. And the Seleucid Empire ended up being uh, a great oppressor of the nation of Israel. So further on down the line, a gentleman named Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV came to power. Epiphanes was a title that he gave himself. Uh, it means God manifest. So he was calling himself God. And he was coming home from a campaign down in Egypt when he went up against Jerusalem with a great multitude and entered the temple and he entered into the holiest of holies. And he took the golden altar and the candlestick and all the vessels, the table of showbread, the golden censer, and everything that basically wasn't nailed down or on fire. He massacred everyone he could find, and then he went back to his own land. Two years later, the king sent his chief collector to the cities of Judah. They deceived the people. They smote the city. <clears throat> they took the spoils and they set it on fire. And it says he destroyed much of the people of Israel. Now, what Antiochus wanted, which was different from what Alexander the Great wanted, was Antiochus Epiphanes wanted everybody 
to be Hellenistic. He wanted everyone to be Greek. He wanted everyone to worship the Greek gods. Now, what is the one impressive characteristic of Alexander the Great? He took over the entire world. He took over the entire world by the age of 16. He threw himself on his bed, weeping, because there were no more lands to conquer at 16 years old. And when he went into lands and he conquered them, what was unique about Alexander the Great? Moses? He never destroyed their temples. He left the temples. He left the monasteries. He left the churches alone. He said, I do not know which one is the true God, so we will destroy none of them. When Alexander the Great took over Babylon, and we're not, this is, we're not going to get into that story, he sent ahead of himself letters to be read in Babylon, which said, we will not enter your home. He gave them assurances of safety. He was very, very different. On the spectrum, the spectrum of a world-dominating dictator, he was one of the best. Antiochus Epiphanes is the worst. He's the absolute worst. Antiochus Epiphanes wanted everyone to give up their religion, their language, their culture, and he wanted them to be Greek. Now, this went over pretty well in a lot of parts of the world because, let's face it, there's lots of groups that, you know, sure, we like worshiping this way and being this people, but in the end, you threaten us with death. We're just going to go ahead and capitulate, okay? Maybe we'll root for the Red Sox instead of the Yankees. So be it. <clears throat> this didn't work in one tiny, tiny little spot of land in the Middle East, in Israel. Now, not obeying the king's command was a capital crime. Many of the Israelites consented to his religion. They forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings. They profaned the Sabbaths and the festivals and the feast days. They polluted the sanctuary and the holy people. They set up altars and groves and chapels of idols. They sacrificed swine and other unclean beasts. They put to death the women who had their children circumcised. They killed the babies and hung them from around the mother's necks. They burnt the book of the law in the streets. This was one of the worst times that the Jews had ever had to deal with. Owning a Bible, keep in mind we're still in B.C., so there's no New Testament to speak of, but owning the Tanakh was punishable by death. Even though all of these things that the Jews had as their culture and their tradition and their religion and their lifestyle for so long, even though several of them were willing to give these things up, um, there was a large number in Israel who chose to die rather than to profane the things of the Lord. They refused to stop the Sabbath. They refused to eat 
meats offered to idols. They refused to, they, they insisted on circumcising their sons. They, they had traditions, they had commands from God, and they were not willing to change. So there is one fella that started a big old problem. And he was responsible for starting what most people in the world would call the Maccabean Revolt. Whereas the Israelites would probably call it the Israel War of Independence. It was a lot like, I don't know how many are familiar with the, the little tiff between the Irish and the English. Well, the British call that war the Irish Rebellion. The Irish call it the Irish War of Independence. See, it depends on which side of the conflict you're on, you give it a different name. So there was a fella, he lived in Moden. He was a priest named Mattathias, and he had five sons. And one of the sons was named Judas, and they called him Maccabeus. Does anyone know what the name Maccabeus means? It means the hammer. This guy's nickname was the hammer. Now, I don't know why he got that name. I just would not want to find out why a guy would be nicknamed the hammer. So Mattathias and his sons mourned over Israel. Um, you can read about this whole story in the second book of Maccabees. It's a historical book. Obviously, it's written about the timeline in between the writing of the Old and the New Testaments. They talked about it being one of the most lamentable times in the nation of Israel because the people were oppressed so heavily, so greatly, and to disobey the orders of Antiochus Epiphanes. They were all capital crimes, so people were, were dying in the streets. So all of a sudden, there are these men that entered into the city of Modin. And they gathered everyone together along with Mattathias and his sons. And there was, because the nation of Israel refused to capitulate, they continued to press harder and harder and come up with more laws and more regulations and, and to be more and more oppressive. And they finally said, here's what we're doing. We're setting up an idol in the center of every single town in Judea. And every single person in that town will bow down before this idol or we will kill them. That's what's going to happen. We are going to get these folks on their knees and they are going to capitulate. So the king's officers went to Mattathias and they flattered him, seeking his help to get the people to quietly worship the idols they were setting up. And Mattathias was offered silver and gold. And they said, look, we just need to sign off on our book that your people bowed to this idol. And we'll be on our way. We don't need to come back to your town ever again. But you must bow your knee to this idol. Now you are a priest. And if you will do this, 
We know the rest of your town will follow you and we can leave peacefully and we'll be out of your hair. Now, this is a question for you. If Mattathias was a priest, that meant he was from what tribe? Mac? The Levites. The Levites were the toughest and most violent of the 12 tribes of Israel. Throughout the entire Old Testament, they were the group that would draw their swords and cut off your head and then ask questions about what you did wrong. These guys were severe. So Mattathias answered and spake with a loud voice. Now, there are portions I'm going to be quoting from this book, so bear with me when it sounds a little funny because it's, it's an older book. <clears throat> he said, Though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and fall away, every one from the religion of their fathers and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brethren walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the ordinances. We will not hearken to the king's words to go from our religion, either on the right hand or the left. Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> God says we are not to depart from his ways to the right hand or to the left. We are to do exactly what God says. Now, when he had left speaking these words, there came one of the Jews in the sight of all to sacrifice on the altar, which was at Modin, according to the king's commandment. Which thing? When Mattathias saw, he was inflamed with zeal, and his reins trembled. Neither could he forbear to show his anger according to judgment. He was so angry that he was physically shaking, and he could not hide how mad he was. Now, I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 13, and this is really the only verse I'm going to bring up, I think, unless we get off on a wrap. I'm going to bring up today in Deuteronomy chapter 13. I want to give you guys an idea because, <clears throat> look, there are some concepts in this story that are so foreign to us that it makes the story sound insane. I have told my sons and my wife many, many times that there is a fate far worse than death. And that fate is dishonor. And most people can't comprehend that idea, but it is found all throughout the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said very clearly to a dictator who was violent beyond comprehension, we are not bowing to that idol. And we're very aware that you are going to kill us in a very painful way. But we don't care how many people bow to that idol. The three of us 
will be standing here when the music starts. The idea that they were to die for their beliefs was not difficult for them to hold on to. That concept, they had made that decision long ago. Their thought was the dishonor of disobeying God and bowing down to an idol in front of my wife and my children is so repugnant that I would rather die today and be able to walk up to my creator with my head held high. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 11, We read, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or the son of thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off, from thee, from the one end of the earth unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him. <clears throat> God is saying very clearly, you folks are going to be going over a river. You're going to be taken over Canaan land. And when you get there, there are going to be remnants of the bad people. And you are going to have friends and they are going to say, let's go over to this other area and let's worship this false god. And God's saying, you are not to consent unto them, nor hearken unto him. Neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. Well, God, loud and clear, that's pretty good. I'm not going to go hang out with my friend that goes over to worship some other God. Loud and clear, not going to do it, Lord, not going to do it. But then you read the next verse. But thou shall surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. There are very few crimes in the Bible where you are to act as judge, jury, and executioner. There are no other witnesses required when idolatry is involved. You do not bring them to the gate of the city. There is no trial. No witnesses are called. When someone worships an idol, you are the first to kill them. It is your duty. That idea is so foreign. But the purpose was, everybody needs to know how serious I am about idolatry. It said, all Israel will hear and fear. 
So what happened? Mattathias was in the process of telling the king's servant, nope, this ain't going to work. I'm not going to play ball. And there came an Israelite, one of the Jews, came to the idol to sacrifice to it. And Mattathias was inflamed with zeal and his reins trembled. Neither could he forbear to show his anger according to judgment. Wherefore, he ran and slew him upon the altar. Also the king's commissioner who compelled men to sacrifice, he killed at that time and the altar he pulled down. So Mattathias, this priest of the tribe of Levi, saw one of the Jews go to an idol to sacrifice in front of it. He killed him. He killed the men that Antiochus Epiphanes sent to that town, and he destroyed the idol. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. We might find that severe, but God didn't. God said that's the only way we handle that situation. So you find both. You find several. So the crazy part is, in Deuteronomy, when God is explaining this, and, and, and the penalty for idolatry is found in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's found all over the place. It describes whoever's doing this, and it describes if your friends or family try to entice you to do this. Because you got to remember, if you were an idol worshiper and you lived in Israel, you didn't bring that up to anybody. And if you wanted to ask someone to go and do it with you, you better be real sure that this was a top-notch friend of yours that wasn't just going to run you through with a sword. No, we see it back in Exodus early on with the Ten Commandments. So idolatry is one of many capital crimes. Kidnapping was a capital crime. Um, uh, rape was a capital crime. Most sexual sins and sexual perversions, you know, um, incest, rape, things like that, all capital crimes. Um, but idolatry was the big one. Idolatry was a capital crime. Uh, sorcery, witchcraft, those things. Again, capital crime. Necromancy, necrophilia. Believe it or not, that's listed. There's a reason. So then we find out, Mattathias cried throughout the city with a loud voice, saying, Whosoever is zealous of the law and maintaineth the covenant, let him follow me. So Mattathias and his sons go through the streets and they round everybody up and they say, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what happens at this point is word gets back to the king and he's none too happy with what happens. And he sends more people to crush this little rebellion. 
and Maccabeus ends up moving into a position of prominence, and Maccabeus uh, leads this rebellion. They start going through all the small towns and gathering up everyone who wants to follow and worship the Lord, and they end up defeating the soldiers that are sent to crush this rebellion. So now they have weapons and now they have more guys that are joining and they defeat a larger uh, um, detachment of soldiers and they continue to do this. This entire rebellion of the nation of Israel over the Seleucid Empire, it went on for seven years. And... Maccabeus led an army of mostly untrained and at times unarmed men into battle against professional soldiers. He did it so many times that Antiochus Epiphanes was having trouble hiring soldiers to send to Israel because word had gotten out that this army cannot be defeated. They went up against greater numbers with well-trained soldiers with better arms again and again and again, and they were victorious. So what ends up happening... is Judas Maccabeus secures the temple. He secures the the temple in Jerusalem. They win it back from the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes. And the sanctuary was desolate, and the altar was profaned, and the gates were burnt down. And they built a new altar, and they built up the sanctuary, and they made new holy vessels, and they brought in the candlestick and the altar of incense and the table of showbread, and they burnt incense and the lamps which were on the candlestick. They lighted, and they gave light into the temple, and the oil that was only enough for one day lit the temple for eight days. See, in the, in the temple, you find out that in the holy place, there was the table of showbread, there was the candlestick, um, and that was the menorah, what we're used to, which is the seven-branched candlestick. And that had lamps on it, and they would fill them with oil, and they would burn. And they were supposed to be filled daily, and they were supposed to burn perpetually. They were never supposed to go out. And that was the only light in the holy place, because there were no windows in there. So that gave, gave light, and it allowed the priests to do their duties with uh, the table of showbread and the altar of incense, which they were supposed to burn. And that was the miracle uh, of Hanukkah. They finally got back their temple. And keep in mind, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he, they took everything, they stole everything, they sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. Obviously, they knew what they were doing. They did that on purpose. They wanted to desecrate uh, the temple. And they cleansed the temple, they purified everything, they built a new altar, they did everything they're supposed to do, and, and they said, we only have oil for one night. And the priest said, we're going to light it for one night. We're going to obey God however we can for as long as we can. 
So they lit the menorah. So because when they came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and they desecrated the temple, and then they sent back soldiers to go and do it again, Jerusalem was really overrun and people had fled. Okay, so no one was in the temple. And then the laws came that it was illegal to sacrifice unto God. It was illegal to burn incense. It was illegal to do any of the uh, uh, Levitical priestly duties. So at that time, everything had ceased because they came in there and they were going to kill anyone that showed up to do anything. So um, the Seleucid Empire was moving in and was in, you know, many of the cities uh, throughout Israel, uh, especially the major ones like Jerusalem. So there were soldiers all over the place. Uh, there were little skirmishes. There was, you know, little people rebelling and refusing to uh, obey the king's commands, and they needed a lot of soldiers around to just be killing all the Jews that were disobeying. So there was nothing there. I mean, they lit the place on fire and destroyed everything that they could. So they um, that was that was the case. Yep. So the they lit the uh, menorah. It was lit for uh, eight days, and everyone recognized that as a miracle. Now. On the 25th day of the ninth month, they offered sacrifices according to the law upon the new altar of burnt offerings, which they had made. And that was called the dedication. So Hanukkah has always been the dedication or the rededication, right, of the temple. So that's what it's always been called is, is the dedication. We find that all over the place, including in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you go to John chapter 10, you find that Jesus was adamant in John chapter 10 that he be able to go back to Jerusalem for Hanukkah. On uh, John chapter 10, verse 22, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. And when you read through that, you find out that the story that he is explaining, um, <laughs> the uh, it really only works if <laughs> there is a... Um, a big menorah there that he is explaining about the light and the whole, anyway, the whole thing. So Jesus uh, made sure that he was in Jerusalem for uh, Hanukkah. So you find it in, uh, you find it in the Bible, you find Jesus being present and, and taking part. It's a great question. So it was celebrated immediately, and uh, and I will find this for you right here. With me. Okay. Moreover, Judas and his brethren with the whole congregation of Israel ordained that the days of the dedication of the altar should be kept in the season from year to year by the space of eight days 
from the five and 20th day of the month with mirth and gladness. So they decided that that year that this was going to be a perpetual celebration uh, that they were going to do every year. So from then on, uh, it became uh, customary uh, to the Jews. So this is, now let's move on to practical application. This is what I take away whenever this time of year comes around and I read this story, which I do every year, and I remind myself of what God's people went through. It was a capital crime to keep the Sabbath day. It was a capital crime to own or read the Bible. It was a capital crime to circumcise your children. Uh, if you were uh, a male and you were circumcised, they would kill you. Okay, that was something that they literally went around and checked on. Okay, if you kept the holy days, you were killed. It, th there were so many pressures on you in your day-to-day -day life and everything that was your normal life and how you worshiped God, now it was against the law and you would be killed for it. Let me make this clear when I say there is nothing like that in my life. Nothing. I have no pressures whatsoever. Owning a Bible will not get me killed. Reading the Bible and praying and teaching the Bible and praying and reading the Bible with my children and singing to God and worshiping God and praying with other people and talking about God and, and circumcising my son. And there is nothing that I am going through like these people went through. And th this story is 25 times longer than the very brief version that I gave you tonight. And anyone that wants, you, you can buy one of these books and you can read it. It's, it's, an, enter, it's, it's an entertaining, it's an encouraging story. It's, it's a remarkable piece of history. Um, but over and over again, throughout the entire land of Israel, there were groups that said, we will not bow the knee to this idol. You go ahead and kill us. We will not do what you say, and we know that we will die for it. And I read that, and I think to myself, how on earth am I going to go to heaven and stand next to one of these people and explain that I was not willing to get up an extra hour earlier in the morning to make sure I could fit in time to read my Bible and pray before I started my day. How am I going to stand next to Mattathias and tell him, well, I didn't get together with my kids and read the Bible and pray and teach them about the Lord because I like sleep and my comforter is nice and warm. What excuse in my Christian life, where am I failing in my Christian life where I'm going to be able to stand before 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because you got to remember, I'm going to be living with them forever. That's how long heaven is. And I hope and pray to God those guys aren't jerks. Because they could bring that up and rub that in my face every day for eternity. What is my excuse going to be? Why am I a pathetic Christian for all these failings and I am not willing to remedy any of them? Now, that's what I take away from this story. There are a lot more encouraging, exciting, wonderful, uplifting messages in this story. I'm not bringing up any of them. What what this story reminds me of is, Patrick, there are people who love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all over the world who are going through real hard times, and they make it. You better be able to make a little change in your life and be a serious Christian for me. Because the odds are I'm probably never going to have the chance to die for my faith. Now, that's probably good, right? But let's face it. If it came down to one decision, wouldn't you want to go out on a high note? Like, let me tell you, I really want to bow to that idol because I do not want to die. And I would just like this whole thing to be gone and we can all just pretend that it didn't happen and I can go right back on, (coughs) you know, to being, you know, whatever (coughs) and just be on with my life. That would be awesome. But the fact is, if I had a chance to die for my faith and I took it, at least I'd have that going for me when I stood before God and you know, I might have a darker sense of humor than some of you. Okay. But at least I could feel like, yeah, boy, I really nailed that one in the end. I got that one right. But my point is that's, it's probably never going to happen in my life. What's going to happen in my life is I need to make the very boring decision to just get up early when I feel like sleeping in and read the Bible with my kids, and pray with my kids, and teach them about God. Do you want to know something? They don't write books about that. It's just not that sexy. They're never going to make a feature film about a middleweight, or I'm sorry, middle-aged, overweight, bald dad that gets up every day and reads the Bible with his kids. That's not going to, no author is looking for that story. This is the story they're looking for, but I'm not going to get to be in this story. I'm not going to get to be in any of these stories. I'm just not. But you want to know something? When I die one day and I go up there and I talk to Mattathias, I'm going to be thrilled that I've done something with my life for the Lord. And that's the thing that I want to encourage everyone here tonight. 
is that life is short and one day we're going to be dead and in heaven with God. And at that point, there is no more time to do anything for God. There's no more time to serve God. There's no more time to tell my neighbor about the Bible. There's no more time to invite someone to a Bible study. There's no more time to, you know, pray for someone that needs prayers, that all of that stuff is going to be done and over with. So I want to make sure that when God puts pressure on me, I can respond to that pressure and I can say, you know what, God, I, I get it. I hear you. I feel what you're trying to tell me. There's a little change in my life somewhere and I'm going to do that. I'm going to start doing it. I'm probably going to fail a lot, but you know what, God, I'm going to make a small change to be closer to you because I feel the hand of the Holy Spirit putting pressure on me. And, uh, and that's great. I got it. Let's, let's get it going. And that's all God wants from us is to just respond when the Holy Spirit puts a little pressure on us and says, hey, 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 you need to stop doing this. You, you got to knock this one off. Or God says, hey, you've been hearing me tell you for years you need to start doing this. It's time to get going. Now's the day. Don't ignore the preacher again and wait till next year. Let's go. Time to do it. Holy Spirit puts pressure on us. We need to make a little change. And what your change is and what my change is might be very, very different. That's fine. I just don't want to keep ignoring that still small voice. There is still time in our life to be used greatly for God. All right, let's have a word of prayer and We'll blow the candles out and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you greatly. And um, God, thank you for being here with us tonight. And uh, God, I don't know if that <clears throat> that little story helped anyone or, you know, was for anyone. But Lord, it was a good reminder to me, um, you know, that I need to take my walk with you seriously more than any other part of my life, I have to have a relationship with you. And, and there are areas in my life that I need to work on. And uh, God, I just ask that you would help me with that. Because Lord, at best, I am weak and lazy and apathetic. And God, I would like you to please change me to be more like you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. <clears throat>